Good morning. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Brandy Beck, and I lead one of the small groups for this study on Wednesday mornings. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we come before you now and ask that you might bless this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you are teaching us and showing us in this study. We want to know more of you, and so now we ask that you would meet us here and root these things ever more deeply into our hearts and minds for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Kent Hughes says, What you think of Christ, your conception of him, is everything. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is eternal, without beginning and without end, that he always was continuing. If you believe that he is creator of everything, every cosmic speck across trillions of light years of trackless space, the creator of the textures and shapes and colors that daily dazzle your eyes, if you believe that he is the sustainer of all creation, the force that is presently holding the atoms of your body, your town, this universe together, and that without him all would dissolve? If you believe that he is the mystery, the incarnate reconciler who will one day reconcile the universe and redeem humanity to himself, if you believe that he is the lover of your soul, who loves you with a love bounded only by his infinitude, then despite the fact that life will be full of trouble, nothing much will go wrong. Your vision of Christ will quicken and shape your life. What you believe about Christ makes all the difference in the world, now and in eternity. Well, I love those words. They express the magnitude of the person of our Savior, and in expressing his great love for us, even though Hughes does not mention the cross of Christ, isn't that exactly where Christ's love takes us? It was love that did that. Love that met the holy expectation of a God that cannot tolerate sin, but also the mercy and grace of a God who desires to draw us near, and who in his Son, through his death and resurrection, reconciles us to himself, and promises to change us and perfect us and deliver us to heaven for eternity. And this is what we've been seeing in Paul's letter to the Colossians, this beautiful letter to encourage a church to stand steadfast and stable in the hope of the gospel that they had heard. In the passage that we studied last week, verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul expounded on the perfect person and work of Christ Jesus. He is the gospel that the Colossians had heard and learned and understood, and which indeed was bearing fruit in them and increasing. And now Paul wants them to know that this same gospel that brought them salvation and reconciliation with God is also the very same gospel that brings maturity and sanctification, one day leading to glory. So let's start pulling these verses apart and see what Paul wants the Colossians and us to know. We have three headings tonight. Christ, the one who calls. Christ, the one who is the message and the mystery. And Christ, the one who is the goal. And then a little miscellaneous at the end. 
So Christ, the one who calls. Verses 24 through 25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. In your homework, we had you look at Acts chapter 9 to find out more about this stewardship from God that was given to Paul. We know that Paul was born a Jew and had been a Pharisee devoted to completely stamping out the spread of the gospel and Christianity. In Acts 26, Paul himself says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. But God, right? On the way to Damascus, Paul experiences an astounding vision and hears the voice of Christ speaking to him. And we know that the trajectory of Paul's life is completely changed. In verse 15 of Acts 9, we hear Christ himself speak this new calling over Paul's life as he sends Ananias to Paul saying, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And in Acts 26, verses 16 through 18, we're given even more detail about this call. Christ says to Paul, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was to be a minister and a witness to the things Christ had shown him and would show him as he, Christ, sent Paul to the Gentiles. Christ Jesus has called Paul, and sent him to proclaim the message of the gospel. So Christ is the one who calls, and Christ is the one who is the message and the mystery. Starting in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. In our first two lessons of this study, we examine this very thing, Paul reminding the believers in Colossae that Christ is all they need. He is the gospel, the one through whom they have redemption and reconciliation, the one through whom they are saved. But now Paul tells them and us a little more about this message. It has been a mystery hidden for ages and generations. Why a mystery? 
Why does Paul use this word? I think there are at least a couple of reasons. First and foremost, we know that for ages and generations, God had been promising rescue and redemption for his people. But this message had been hidden in shadows. The Old Testament is full of promises of one who will come to bring deliverance and peace for the people of God, which in the Old Testament refer to the nation of Israel. We see these promises in Genesis 3, when God says that the woman's offspring will bruise the head of the serpent, and in Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17, where Abraham is told that through his seed the nations will be blessed. Again, in 2 Samuel 7, there is the promised son of David, whose kingdom will be established forever. And also Isaiah 53, where we find the promise of the suffering servant who will bear the sins of many and bring healing through his wounds. And those are only a few. However, it was unclear how these promises were to be fulfilled. How would it happen? In 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, we saw that the prophets who prophesied these things longed to see who it was who was coming and at what time and how it would be done. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 tell us, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And on the road to Emmaus, Christ himself reveals to two of his disciples that the scriptures indeed testify about him and that he is the one who was promised. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these things were indeed a mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in Christ. There is, I think, another reason that Paul uses this word mystery. Remember that in her introductory lecture, Julie told us that there was a threat to this church. We do not know the exact details, whether the threat was coming from within or from without, or to what extent, if any, it had begun to take hold in this church. But we do know that there were people coming to the Colossian believers and telling them that there was more to know, mysteries to be revealed hidden and secret knowledge for the especially enlightened and knowledge that would lead to great wisdom and fulfillment. It seems that Paul is using this word here very intentionally as a shot against these false teachers, using the same language they were using and turning their words against them. They were using the word mystery to imply something special and secret only for a select few. Paul uses the word, not only here in Colossians, but throughout many of his other letters, to imply the hidden plan of God, the plan of salvation from the beginning of time to redeem the world through his son, Christ Jesus, the plan that is now revealed through the proclamation of the gospel. I like how the Blue Letter Bible puts it. In the ordinary sense, a mystery implies knowledge withheld. Its scriptural significance is truth revealed. And notice, too, that Paul fires another shot at these false teachers in verse 3 of chapter 2, 
when he says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Over and over again, Paul emphasizes the complete sufficiency and supremacy of Christ Jesus. Paul also makes clear that the delivery and peace promised in the Old Testament is not limited to the Israelites. God's mystery includes the Gentiles, verse 27, and that is why in verse 28, Paul says he warns and teaches everyone. And later in Colossians 3.11, we will see that there are no longer any national or racial or ethnic boundaries among the people of God. Okay, before we move on, let's address that tricky little statement that Paul makes in verse 24. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, I know you discussed this in your small groups, but let's look at it again real quick to make sure we all understand what Paul is saying here. We know that Christ's afflictions, his suffering and death on the cross for the sake of the church were completely sufficient for our salvation to redeem us and provide the forgiveness of sins. Paul has already stated this so clearly right in this very letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Past tense, done. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. You who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And then looking forward in chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there is nothing lacking in the sufficiency of Christ's afflictions to redeem his people. So what is Paul saying? During your work on this passage, we had you look at Philippians 2.30, where Epaphroditus almost died to complete what was lacking in the Philippians' offering to Paul, meaning he delivered it. What was lacking was that it had not been delivered to Paul. And we see the same thing happening here. Paul is not in any way adding to the worth or value or efficacy of the afflictions of Christ. Rather, he is proclaiming them to those who have not yet heard extending them to the world, and filling up what is lacking in their delivery and presentation to the nations. And more often than not, particularly in Paul's case, this occurs through suffering. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24-28, Paul gives us a catalog of sorts of the sufferings he has experienced in his mission to wait, make the word of God fully known. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, 
there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Joseph Son, a Romanian missionary, once said, The cross of Christ is for propitiation. Our cross is for propagation. That is, Christ suffered to accomplish salvation, and we suffer to spread salvation. Why? Well, darkness hates the light. And just as Paul was once so violently to the point of murder opposed to the message of Christ, those who still oppose it will come against it with all malice. The cross of Christ was the plan of God from the beginning of time, but it was also the hatred of the world that nailed the Savior to that cross. And it is also important to remember that Paul's willingness to suffer for the spread of the gospel highlights its value to the rest of the world. The proclamation of the message of the person and work of Christ Jesus is worth more than our own comfort and ease and safety and security. So Christ is the one who calls. He is the message and the mystery. And now Christ is the one who is the goal. Starting in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I said at the beginning that Paul wanted the Colossian believers to know that the same gospel that brought them salvation is also the very same gospel that brings maturity and sanctification. Paul did not just preach for the moment of salvation. He was teaching and warning for maturity and growth in Christ. Now, the word mature that Paul uses in verse 28 has the meaning of being made complete, something coming to its finished end. And this is exactly what happens in sanctification as God's image is being restored in us, those who are saved by faith in Christ Jesus being brought to their intended finished end, Christ's likeness, displaying the image and glory of God. Now, later in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul tells the Colossians that their new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And we see the same thing in Romans 8, 29, where it says, Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians three eighteen tells us that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Christ-likeness is the goal. That is sanctification and maturity, becoming ever more like our Savior in the way that we think and feel and act. That is what it means for the believer to be brought to his finished end. And this comes about in us through knowledge of the gospel and through the empowering of the Spirit, the same Spirit that works in us, opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel that we might receive Christ and be saved, is the very same Spirit that works in us, enabling us to take the knowledge of the gospel that we have heard and learned and apply it 
and wisdom and understanding to our attitudes, affections, and actions. The Holy Spirit aids us in bringing the truth of the gospel to bear on our lives daily, hourly, and even minute by minute so that we may walk in a manner worthy of him. Now, what do we have in the gospel for salvation that we need to remember and apply for sanctification? Well, to name a few, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, the righteousness of Christ, the indwelling of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, the promise of glory, being buried with Christ and raised to new life, his love set on us without being earned, and adoption, being brought into the family of God. But what does this mean practically? Because it can seem a little heady and confusing at times to say that we just need to remember the gospel. So I'm going to use myself as an example. Believe it or not, I am still a sinner, washed clean by the blood of Christ, yes, but still very immature, not yet complete, and I sin regularly. Just ask those who live with me and know me. I need the gospel to change me. So what do I do? Well, first, I regularly meditate on the person and work of Christ in the message of the gospel. When I read something like the Christ hymn in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, no matter how many times it takes my breath away and I am brought to my knees in worship and praise for the one who is and has done these things. And when I meditate on him and see his almost unfathomable beauty and worth, the world and my own self become lesser things. And what I once loved is no longer desirable to me. And when I consider what he has done in reconciling me to himself, I who was alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, my heart is flooded with gratitude and joy and love, and I want to be different. That love, that gratitude, compels me to choose to live a different way, a way that honors him by obedience, walking in a manner worthy, bearing fruit in good works, doing the things he has called me to do in his word and not doing those things he has said that I ought not do. But my heart is forgetful and deceitful, and every day I sin. And so I need to remember what I know again and go back to the gospel over and over, reminding myself of who he is, what he has done, who I was, and who I am now. And I need the Holy Spirit within me to remind me, and I need to continually turn to the word to remind me. And when I say the word, I mean God, God's word, the Bible. We cannot rely on the words coming from our own minds unless we are memorizing scripture word for word. In Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So what else do I do? Well, in those moments of temptation, when sin seems very appealing, one thing that greatly helps me to resist is remembering the exorbitant price that was paid for me so that my sins would be forgiven. When I return to the gospel and think about his blood that was shed, that the penalty for my sins, which is death, 
was paid for by him, sin seems much, much less appealing to me. And then when I fail and I do sin, I turn to the gospel again to remind myself that in Christ I am right with God. When we carry around guilt and shame and cannot let it go, we are forgetting the gospel. We are forgetting that in Christ, because of the life he led in our place and because our debt was nailed to his cross, we stand righteous before the Father. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 tells us. So we cannot walk in defeat, forgetting what we already have. Repent, yes, and then move on. And when I feel unloved, unlovely and unlovable, and I'm tempted to hustle for my worth, seeking the praise of man, forgetting that Colossians 3.12 calls me chosen, holy, and beloved of God, I must go to the gospel again and remember that it was his love that was set on me from before time and his love that was displayed on the cross. Love that is an overflow of who he is, not based on anything about me or what I've done or anything I can do to earn favor. And then when hopelessness comes and I begin to feel despair, especially in a month like we've had with hurricanes and earthquakes and the shootings in Las Vegas and now the fires in California, on top of the heartaches in our own families and communities, and I'm tempted to feel that all is lost and evil has won. I turn to the gospel and I remember that my hope is in heaven. Glory is coming and the creator of all is in complete control of all. And one day I will be with him and all these things will be set right. All things will be reconciled. And when I feel so slow to grow and so slow to learn, I turn again to the gospel and consider the resurrection of Christ, the power of the gospel. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raises me to newness of life, and it is the very same power that is at work in me, changing me and conforming me to his image. And throughout, I pray for help because I now have access to the throne of the Father through the Son, and I lean on the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers me and enables me to do all these things. So that is how it looks a little more practically, and we all must be engaging in this fight by clinging to the gospel, growing in knowledge of it and in wisdom and in applying it, and all the while relying on the incredible power of the Spirit. And I think this is what we are seeing in chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul says that he struggles, that their hearts may be encouraged. It is so that their hearts, which in biblical terms is one's entire being, the source of thinking, feeling, and willing, might be strengthened and encouraged to continue on, growing in the gospel to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ, to be Christ-like, to be conformed to the image of the Son. And I wonder, what of the things I just described, the ways in which I need to cling to the gospel, resonated with you? Where have you been forgetting what you already have and who you already are? 
And what have you been forgetting about who he is and what he has done? So Christ is the one who calls, the one who is the message and the mystery, and the one who is the goal. And now for the miscellaneous. And if you're from New Orleans, it's called Lanyap. Warning, toiling, and rejoicing. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Remember, Paul knows there are people out there trying to tell the Colossians that they need to do more, know more, add more. And he knows that often those lies can sound like truth. And so he warns that they may not be deceived and that they might not shift from the gospel. It is for this that Paul toils and struggles, that they may continue stable and steadfast, reaching the riches of full assurance and the knowledge of Christ, to continue and to grow and bear fruit. And I think here we are seeing something of what we read in the passage from 2 Corinthians regarding Paul's sufferings. Verse 28 of that passage, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Though in prison, Paul continues to write, and exhort, and correct, and he prays without ceasing. And lastly, Paul rejoices. First, he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 24, because he knows that throughout the world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And second, in chapter 2, verse 2, we see he rejoices to see the good order and firmness of faith in the Colossians. Thus far, it seems that they are in fact holding fairly steady and Paul loves the body of Christ and rejoices when it is growing in maturity and holding fast to faith in him. And all of this is an example to us. We must, like Paul, go forth and proclaim. How will they know if they have not heard? And if that brings suffering, so be it. Rejoice for the privilege of suffering for him and for the privilege of participating in bringing the message of salvation to a world that is perishing. And we, like the Colossians, must remember the power of the gospel to change us and transform us so that we reflect the image and glory of God. We must cling to it and preach it over and over to ourselves that we may be fully pleasing and mature and complete in him. And we must not allow ourselves to be deluded and led astray, turning to other things. And like Paul, we must toil and struggle for the sake of the body investing ourselves in the growth and maturity of those around us, warning and teaching in various capacities, publicly or privately, officially or unofficially, continually pointing them to the power of the Spirit and the sufficiency of the gospel to bring them to Christ-likeness. It is for this that we must toil, because it is this that brings the message of the sufficiency of Christ for salvation and sanctification to a world that is lost. And it is this that brings him great glory and praise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the gift you have given us in the work of your son, Jesus, who saves us and changes us. Our lives are not our own. We belong to you and you have called us to reflect your glory through lives lived in worship and praise of you and in lives that reflect your character by how we think and feel and act. You are the one who calls us to these things, and you are the one who is faithful and will surely do it in us. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.